Revelations chapter 22, verses 7 through 20. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers the prophets and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who chooses who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes. I am coming soon. May God bless the reading of his word. So when I was in Australia in grad school, I didn't, the program was kind of overwhelming for me, but I didn't want to spend my whole life doing just grad school. I wanted to have some ministry involvement as well. So I was serving part-time in a local church there. And the senior pastor needed some help because he'd just been diagnosed with leukemia. He was only about 35 years old. So basically my role was, I had a few general roles, but basically my role was to sit near the phone on a Saturday night. So if he couldn't make it to the worship service Sunday morning, he'd give me a call and say, okay, you're in. And then I would preach with just eight hours notice. So I, as Terry prayed, you know, I've been fighting off this virus for a few days and I don't normally get sick, and if I get sick, I, I never go around for a few days with it. So I thought, oh, I'll be okay. So last night I had to decide, do I put in a phone call to Pastor David and say, okay, you're on tomorrow. <laughs> and then he has to stay up all night. But for, well, two things, two reasons why I didn't. Number one is he's on worship team, and I didn't want to interfere with that. And the other is he's a real nice guy, and I remember what it was like, and I didn't want to do that to him. So instead, do what you can to figure out what I'm saying. Uh, hopefully, we'll get through it all together and we'll be fine. Oh, and, and one of our church members pointed out to me that next week, provided I get well, the presider can begin the service by saying, God is good, and Pastor Chuck is better. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Lightning only strikes the pulpit. It won't hit me over here. <laughs> Now, if you want to know who taught me that sacrilege, you see me afterwards and I'll tell you. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. Now, maybe you were surprised by a scripture reading from Revelation because didn't we finish Revelation last week after the last, after a long, the end of a long series? Well, yeah, we did. But as we've been working through Revelation, you know, for those of you who don't come here regularly, our, our pattern is to work through the scripture chapter by chapter and section by section. So what's the point of this section? So we've been preoccupied with what's the point? What's, what's John saying here? What's God saying here to us through this? And we've never had a chance really to collect it all together. And as we've been preaching through, I thought, you know, there's a lot that's in Revelation that ties in with our core values. And I, oh, I'd, you know, I'd really like to spend some time reflecting on our core values in, in the light of Revelation. You see, what happens is Scripture tells us many, many things. And it's just really hard to keep all that detail together. So what we've tried to articulate is, from Scripture, what is God calling us to do? How can we group these things together to make it manageable to say, oh yeah, God is calling us to this. And he's calling us to this. And, and how can we group it together to a manageable list? Well, as it turns out, our first draft, at least, we have really, we've grouped together into five ideas. And these ideas keep recurring through Revelation. So I wanted to take this week to look at those. Ideally, I would take five weeks, but we have Easter coming, as, we, as uh, Terry also prayed. And we really want to spend the next month reflecting on uh, uh, the death of Christ and its significance for us, what we gained from Easter. But I wanted to interrupt that series, or, or just before we get to that series, to spend one week here pulling together some of the themes, core themes of Revelation, and show how they reflect on the core values, the five core values that govern our life together as a church. Now, just before I start that, I want to add one more note. <clears throat> so last week... I ended with the notion that maybe there's not just a first coming of Christ and a second coming of Christ. Maybe there's five comings of Christ. And if you weren't here last week, I'm not going to tell you why. You just, that's the mystery. shows you should come to church every week so you understand, you know, you grab these things. You miss one week and you don't know what you miss. But anyway, the point is, some of the study group leaders say, whoa, I'm not sure, you know, what does that leave us? So I'm going to try to write up just a brief summary, two or three page summary of what all this leaves us with. In particular, in particular, some people say, well, is Christ coming back or not? And, well, the short answer is yes. If you want the long answer, keep an eye on the website, because if I manage to write something up in the next week or two, no promises, I'll post it on the website. But yes, Jesus is coming back. But there's a lot going on before he comes back, and that's really what we want to pay attention to. All right, so today, our five core values as a congregation. Oh, we had a slide with five, all five of them at once, didn't we? Or did I animate it? And when I told you I didn't animate it, there you go, I did animate it, and I told them I hadn't. Five core values really is God, Bible, transformation, community, and mission. And we'll look at each of these five in turn and see what Revelation has to tell us about it, how Revelation reinforces these as core values. So the first core value is a, a God-focus. God is our creator, our redeemer, our sanctifier, our judge, our glorifier. And all of these theological notions have practical significance. Therefore, therefore we love and we, we worship, we love and we serve him. This is really the bottom line of what Revelation is all about. 
Revelation reinforces this notion that there is one God in heaven above and on earth below. And we are all to worship this one God. Revelation chapter 22, verse 13 states it like this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus says. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. I am the one who created the world. All things began in me. I am the beginning. And I'm the end. All things come to me. All things are accountable to me. All things find their fulfillment in me. I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And chapter 22, verse 1, shows us Jesus and, and the Father on the throne. It refers to the throne of God and the Lamb. Verse 3, the throne of God and the Lamb. What John is focusing on here, where he begins, everything in Revelation comes out of this, develops out of this. That God is the creator. That God is the redeemer. That God is the judge. That God is the center of all that is, seen and unseen. And because he's the center of all things, he demands to be the center of our lives. Remember how Revelation chapter 1 began. John knows what he's going to be saying, and he knows that Revelation is going to be hard for people to hear and read and, and obey. He's going to be telling them, look, this may cost you your life, but you can't back down. He's going to be telling them, you've got to serve me. Even if you go to jail, even if your home is confiscated, even if your family suffers, even if you're killed. Some have been killed and more are going to be killed. He doesn't back away from it. And he starts off Revelation by saying, you're going to have to endure whatever comes. Why? Revelation chapter 1, the first few verses shows us a picture of God on the throne. Why do we have to endure? Why do we have to serve God? Because he is the emperor, sovereign over all the world. The emperor is not sitting in Rome in a palace. The emperor is not the deity Roma overseeing Rome in the palace. The emperor is God in heaven above, the God of the earth below. And he tells, them, he tells us, no matter what it costs, we serve him. First of all, because he's emperor. And then after reflecting on God the Father, he talks about Christ the Son. Why else must we, we serve God? Why must our lives revolve around God? Because Jesus, the Son of God, died for us. John says, I'm not asking anything of you that Christ hasn't already done for you. And if the Son of God would do this for you, how can you not do this in reciprocation? for him. If the father loved you that much to send his son and if the son was so devoted to the father and to you that he would die then how can you say you're going to run your own life and that God can be a peripheral. He can bring you salvation. He can be in your life but he won't be the center of it. So the first core value and for our church, our congregation and the beginning point of revelation is everything in life in our lives has to focus around God. And so concretely, what does this look like? Well, what it looked like for them was this. In their particular context, what it meant was that they could not worship the emperor. Now, the emperor didn't think he was God. It was, this is political. This is what's called civil religion. 
you know, the government uses religion for political purposes, you know. All they had to do was make these vows. All they had to do was make these offerings. They didn't have to believe this stuff. They didn't really have to be sincere. All they had to do was go through the motions. And if they said no, they were viewed as antisocial and seditious. And that's why they got persecuted, just because they wouldn't make some simple offering. And John said, look, there's one God in heaven above. There's one Son of God who died for you. Your lives must center around him. And you cannot even pretend to worship. You cannot even make an offering to any other God. You must be faithful to him alone. What does it look like for us? I just want to give a, current, a recent example. It's a little bit volatile, and I hope it won't offend you. I mean, it would offend some people. I, you know, we waited four to six weeks, and maybe it'd be okay at this point. But it's no different than what was going on in Revelation. And Newtown, Connecticut, recently went through this horrific slaughter of little children. And it's inevitable when a community is grieving that they pull together. And it's inevitable when a community is grieving that they bring God into it. And given the fact that we're in modern America, people want to get together. As a community, they want to get together with God. And what it really means is you end up getting together with a lot of people from a lot of faith traditions and a lot of different gods. And so in Newtown, Connecticut, they had an interfaith prayer service together. And uh, President Obama came and spoke. So there's, there's two dimensions of this interfaith prayer service. One is, it's interfaith. So people, religious leaders from a variety of traditions and worshipers from a variety of traditions are getting together, each praying to their God as best they understand him as a group. And then President Obama comes and speaks. Now, again, no criticism of President Obama. I'm sympathetic with some of his policies, not whatever, you know. Uh, it's not a political statement. He comes as president in the midst of a crisis, and it's an interfaith service. And so he quotes Bible verses from Jesus. He, he, didn't, quote the, he didn't mention the name Jesus, because that would be offensive to the Muslims or the Baha'i or, or to the other groups there. But he... He quotes the Bible verses, and then he gives a political talk. Oh, you know, he gives a he gives a talk as a president, right? So this is two things. One is it's interfaith prayer service, and the other is it's civil religion. It's the president serving in a religious capacity for the welfare of the country. One of the Christian leaders who participated was a Lutheran pastor from a conservative Lutheran denomination. Now, you've got liberal Lutherans and you've got conservatives, but this pastor was from a conservative Lutheran denomination. And he prayed at the, end of the, at the end of the prayer service, he prayed. Then the president of that denomination contacted him and required him to apologize to the denomination and to his local church because he participated in the interfaith service. And so the pastor basically wrote, in, in essence, in short, he wrote, I wasn't wrong, but I apologize. And the furor was so great that it was actually the president of the denomination who then had to come out publicly and apologize. The irony is, it's the president of the denomination who was really right from the perspective of Revelation. We don't want to be antisocial. 
We don't want to be disaffirming. But that's exactly the situation they were facing in Revelation. If they were willing to engage in civil religion, they didn't have to believe the emperor was God. The emperor didn't believe it. It was a political custom. But Revelation says, you will not bow the knee. You will not make an offering in any other name. This is just one example, and it's not threatening us particularly, but, but this is one example of what it means for God to be the center is we worship and we honor him alone. By all means, in the midst of crisis, let's gather together with people of all sorts of faith traditions. Let's gather together with the community as a whole. But let's keep our God out of it. Let's keep their God out of it. Let us gather together not only with the community for purely secular events where we care for each other, where we share our grief, where we speak hope. Let's also gather together as a separate religious community because they had to lay down their lives in the book of Revelation to worship God and him alone. The same obligation is on us even though we don't face the same risks. Our lives are to be God-centered, first of all. Our lives are to be driven by the Bible, second of all. Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. These are really strong words in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to these words, then God will add to him the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. You see what Revelation is saying is, this is the word from God. Whoa, this is, this is a huge grace, right? First of all, it's a huge positive. God doesn't leave us wandering in the darkness trying to find him. God tells us what he's like. And he went to great length to tell us what he's like. But now having told us what, he likes, what he's like, he expects us to pay careful heed. This is my word, he says. I've told you how to worship. I've told you how to live. And if you don't like it, you cut part of it out, then I'll cut you out. And if you want to add more to it and you throw it in there, like all the cults basically add more to Scripture, he says, I'll add to you the punishments that I've threatened. Oh, this is really serious. It's a grace, but it's a, it's a really serious grace. You know, and so to reassure, you know, at, again, at that Newtown prayer meeting, just an example, but to reassure the, you know, the, the people that were gathered, Obama quoted from Scripture, outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is seen, but not, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in it is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Here's a problem. Those words come directly from Scripture. And the way they were used, they some, say something dramatically different than what Scripture meant. 
Every week when we gather to look at Scripture, we always ask first, what did this text mean? The phrase for that is authorial intent. When the author wrote it, whether God or the human author, when the author wrote this text, what did he mean? We spend a fair bit of time trying to figure out what did he mean? And then we ask, what does it mean to us? There's a reason why we do that. I know it's harder to follow, but there's a reason why we start with authorial intent. Because God says, if you add to my word, or if you take away from it, if you use it for your own purposes, if you distort it, there's huge consequences. Now, when I first started in university, at a secular university, we had a, I was part of a parachurch organization. I won't mention it, it's not their fault, but, you know. And we had a staff worker. The staff worker's name was Tim, I can tell you that much. Now, Tim was a great uh, communicator, gifted speaker. He, he stayed in the parachurch organization only for a couple of years, and then he went and got a church. He started, he started a church, or he became pastor of a church. And he was a gifted communicator. And the church grew. I was 10,000 people in a few years. And checking up on him years later, just to find out how he was doing, I, I got on uh, the web, did a web search. It turned up his name, and it turned up an article about him. And the secular newspaper writing about the church, because it was a notable event, said this. It referred to his preaching as motivational talks disguised as sermons. You see what the problem with that is? Motivational talks disguised as sermons. A couple years ago, I was listening to an interview. Uh, one of these news shows interviewed probably the most, one of the most famous pastors in America. One of the most famous. One of the biggest churches. And they interviewed him. And the secular news commentator in the interview asked him this. He says, you preach every week. But the Bible hardly ever features in your sermon. What's with that? And the pastor replied, well, he said, other people have those gifts. Those aren't my gifts. And so instead, you know, basically he preaches motivational talks. Both excellent communicators. But our lives, even if it's a bit more work, our lives really have to be focused on Scripture. And certainly our life together has to be focused on Scripture. Because that's what Revelation demanded. Not just the Bible as a talisman. Not just the Bible as the center of our, you know, just like we have it here in the center of the table. But the original meaning of the author, even if it's a bit of a challenge, we spend our time asking, what does this text say? And then we ask, how does it impact us? A third core value, not merely God-centered, not merely biblical, but a third core value is transformational. Now, actually, I should adjust this. I'm trying to get it all into one word, but really the thing is this. This third core value affirms this. And if you've been here long, you know it. Grace is transformational. I need two words. Transformational grace. And there's a huge difference between transformational grace and the thing that passes for grace nowadays. What passes for grace in the books we read often is some kind of God is tolerant. God will overlook your sin. It doesn't matter really how you live. As long as you believe in Jesus, God will take care of it. God, you know, God likes you and, and you'll be all right. God will forgive all your sin. I, I recently uh, picked up a book on grace. And the author kept making the point throughout the book. Grace knows no limits. 
There are no limits to what God will forgive. The central theme of that book is we can't sin so bad or so much that God won't forgive us for it. Now, in a sense, it's true. But Scripture guards that very carefully. It doesn't just say something so bald as that. And it's dangerous to say. So look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Look at what John says here. Well, look at what Jesus says here. Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what? Not according to grace. You see that? I will give to each person according to what they have done. And then you see verse 15, 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who come to Jesus for forgiveness, that they have the right to the tree of life and go, may go into the, through the gates into the city. But verse 15, outside are the dogs. Who's outside? Those who practice divination, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is not just Revelation 22. Probably a dozen times in the New Testament we, we hear this. Let's say you're addicted to pornography. Or let's say you're addicted to money. You can't get enough of it. And you spend it foolishly. And you've prayed to receive Christ. You've given your life to Christ. And you come to the final judgment. What's going to happen? Case by case, Scripture doesn't tell us. I don't know. I can't tell you. I don't know what's going to happen to you. But I can tell you generally what Scripture tells us. If we are God's people, His grace comes into our life and it doesn't merely ignore our sin. It transforms us so that we begin the hard battle of conquering sin. Because if we don't begin that hard battle and if we don't make progress, then here's the answer. Outside the kingdom of God, Outside are those who practice divination, the sexually immoral, the murderers, and the idolaters. There is no sin that we can commit that God can't forgive. But if we claim to be his people, his grace, his power will transform us. And if you are struggling with these sorts of sins, please feel free to see any of the pastors or deacons here afterwards. We have a ministry real to help people, would stand inside people and help conquer these sins. There is no final word of judgment in Scripture, but it's a warning. We won't live like this if we're the people of God. That's the third core value. God-centered, biblical, transforming grace. The fourth is communal. Community. God doesn't call us... You know, here's the thing. What's the most common expression we use for our relationship with God. We have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Fair enough. Important idea. We have a personal relationship. Just because you grew up in the church, it doesn't count. You've got to have a personal connection with Jesus. Just because, I don't know, 
Your parents are Christian. Doesn't count. You've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But because we spend so much time talking about the personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we forget there's a whole other dimension. There's a communal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just me and Jesus, or me and temporary community, me with my friends for as long as I want. Well, there's a communal relationship with Jesus Christ. So take a look how this plays out in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. It talks about the bride. It talks about the marriage between the lamb and the bride. Who's the bride? At the end of time, when Jesus renews all things, and when we marry Jesus, we be, you know, Jesus' bride, right? It's not each of us. It's not like these songs that are, you know, Jesus, my boyfriend songs. It's us, collectively. Oh, yeah, Jesus is our boyfriend. But our boyfriend... No, our fiancé, fiancé, we're engaged. Jesus is our spouse, collectively, not mine individually. No, I mean, it's your girlfriend. Well, I don't know. It doesn't work that way. The idiom only works one way, you know? The imagery only works one way. But anyway, you got the idea. That this relationship is communal, not individual. And we're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. And you know... Uh, part of 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about communion, and it says, whoever takes communion without recognizing the body and blood of Christ. Well, no. Whoever takes, that's how the NIV translates it. Really what the text says, whoever takes communion without recognizing the body. In Corinth, Paul was threatening them with judgment for the way they were taking communion. They, they were sinning while they were taking communion. But no, their sin was not that they were being rude to God. The sin in which they were taking communion was they were being rude to each other. The communion was part of a potluck. And the rich people were coming and bringing all their food from home and they were eating their food before the poor people got there. The poor people weren't off work yet. They were slaves. They couldn't go until their masters released them. So the, the rich were eating a lot of food. The poor would come hungry, no food to bring, and no food left for them. And Paul says, whoa, you eat like that. You take communion but you hurt each other while you're taking communion. He says, you bring judgment. You're eating judgment on yourself, not salvation, judgment. A communal relationship with Jesus Christ. And finally, the last value is missional. This is, it's not enough for us to have a good relationship with Jesus. It's not enough for us to have a good relationship with each other. Revelation also underscores the missional dimension of our life. We are serving in God's mission. He calls us to that. Now, Revelation doesn't focus a lot there, but it does mention it. Revelation doesn't focus a lot there simply because they were a, a threatened community. They were besieged. You know, they were struggling to survive. But why were they struggling to survive? They could have kept quiet. They could have gone underground. And they could have lived. But they wouldn't. Chapter 20, verse 4. Chapter 20, not 23. Chapter 20, verse 4. John looks up to heaven. He sees the thrones. And people sitting on the thrones. Who was sitting on the thrones? I saw the souls of those who had been, headed, who had been beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus. God had called them to Testify. God had called them to live their lives out before the world. God had called them to speak for Jesus. And they spoke for Jesus. 
And the empire told them, you be quiet. You worship the emperor, you'll be fine. And they said, our lives are centered on God. And our lives are spent in the pursuit of his mission. And they weren't fine. But that was fine with them and that was fine with God. Because this was a core piece of their lives. The mission of God. These five values are not just for us collectively. They're, all, they're for us individually. That we would be God-centered. What is God calling you to be and to do that may be painful for you? We each may have to embrace some aspect of this. We're called to love and to serve and make him at the center of our lives. We're all called to live biblically. We're called to understand scripture, to learn it, and to live it out. Are you involved in Bible study? You can't be biblical without at least starting there. Grace is transforming. What work of renewal is God wanting to do in my life? What work of renewal is he wanting to do in your life so that your actual character reflects more of what his character is? God calls us to be in community with each other, not just me and God, but us and each other. What small group are you a part of? What fellowship are you a part of? And God calls us to be engaged in mission. God gives us the opportunity to engage in mission. What is it that God has for you to do? To bring honor to him, help to other believers, or to be useful to the community? These values govern not only our lives together, but our lives individually. Let's pray together.